Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. My guest today is Dr. Ailey Cohen, the triple board certified doctor in rheumatology, internal medicine, and integrative medicine, as well as an environmental health expert. Dr. Cohen is working to educate and empower the next generation to make safer, smarter lifestyle choices. Since I'm a rheumatologist, I see quite a bit of autoimmunity. These are nutritional iodine and other deficits. There are so many components to why people are now getting sicker younger. The idea is that we're now seeing a shift, a sort of shrinking of a time period where we thought people would naturally get sick at certain illnesses. Now we're seeing it younger and we're seeing it without family history, which is really pointing to the environmental exposure component, which includes nutrition. And I think when patients are sick and very angry about it and frustrated, they're not putting up with a lot of conventional talk of just medicines. They're looking to see what's causing their problems upstream. And I think that's why integrative medicine, functional medicine, are gaining the attention that they're getting because they look for an upstream cause if they can find it. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit. And hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility Journey Life Hacks. Here's the tip of the week. If you've listened to my podcast before, you know I speak a lot about environmental toxins. This is a topic that I think is worth repeating because many are just not aware of this topic. So I like to repeat it over and over and give you little small doses of how you can make changes in your everyday life to help reduce your exposure and hopefully support better health and better fertility. We know that we have over 90,000 chemicals that are used in the United States, of which the majority have never been tested for their safety for reproduction or long-term effects. We're surrounded by chemicals in our air, our water, our soil, our food, and the products we purchase. We know that babies are born pre-polluted and prenatal exposure to certain chemicals is linked to various health problems across the lifetime, as well as linked to reduced probabilities of successful conception, as well as increased miscarriage rates. In 2005, the EWG examined the cord blood from babies born in the United States during a two-month period, and they found that the cord blood contained an average of 200 chemicals and pollutants that are commonly found in our homes from flame retardants. Flame retardants are found in older furniture predating 2013. It was added to furniture as a way to help reduce risk of fire, but ended up causing a lot of issues with chemical exposure. Perfluorinated chemicals, which are found in our nonstick pans, treating our furniture with stain resistance, plasticizers, things like phthalates and BPA, and pesticides. And we know that many of these chemicals have been linked to cancer and are toxic to the nervous system and reproductive system. And there is no time period that is more fragile than the development of an embryo and the development of the fetus. This is a time where there's formation of the organs, and a lot of the chemicals that we are exposed to can have a great impact on the life of that child. Many of the chemicals that we're exposed to are what we call endocrine disruptors, which means that they can impact the function, transport, or excretion of our hormones. Our hormones work at very low levels, parts per million, parts per trillion, which is the equivalent of one drop of water in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And so it's not surprising that these extremely low doses of these toxins can have serious impacts. Some of the endocrine-disrupting chemicals, things like bisphenol A or BPA, phthalates, they can lead to increased number of abnormal eggs, lower pregnancy rates, poor sperm quality, increased miscarriage rates, and malformation of the male genitalia, amongst many other things. So on today's episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Ailey Cohen. She's going to be speaking to us about how to navigate through a world filled with chemicals without becoming overwhelmed. We can't control everything in our environment. And again, this is something that I repeat over and over. We cannot eliminate everything. 
But we're speaking about the things that we can control. What kind of things can you do in your environment to reduce your exposure? We know that small little changes can reduce our exposure tremendously in just a short period of time. It's all about selecting the right kind of things in our home, avoiding certain things, and those things can lead to improvements in many areas. A great example is with the chemical BPA or bisphenol A, which is found in plastic water bottles. There have been studies on women who are going through IVF, and it was found that those who had the highest levels of BPA had lower pregnancy rates, fewer eggs, fewer quality eggs, fewer embryos, and fewer embryos that made it to the blastocyst development. It also impacted the receptivity of the uterus. So when I hear things like that, It makes a lot of sense if we have control over trying to reduce our exposure, shouldn't we all be doing it? If it means stopping to drink from plastic water bottles, reducing our use of plastic Tupperware, if those little changes can improve things like our egg quality or our sperm quality, I think it's worth it to try. We don't know how much these chemicals are having an impact on any person's individual fertility. But I think these chemicals impact everyone. As I have spoken about in previous episodes, there's no reason for us to be exposed to these chemicals. They're not doing anybody favors. They've not been tested. We really need to assume that they're not safe for our health and for fetal development and long-term effects of child development. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Dr. Cohen. We are going to get into more about protecting ourselves from toxins in our water, our food, occupational exposure, effects of chemicals on our microbiome, effects of chemicals on COVID and how that can increase our susceptibility to COVID. Thanks for listening today. Here's my interview with Dr. Cohen. I hope you find it as helpful and insightful as I did. My guest today is Dr. Ailey Cohen. Dr. Cohen is a triple board certified doctor in rheumatology, internal medicine, and integrative medicine, as well as an environmental health expert in Princeton, New Jersey. She has collaborated with the Environmental Working Group, Cancer Smancer, and other disease prevention organizations, and is the co-editor of the textbook, Integrative Environmental Medicine, part of the Oxford University Press, while Integrative Medicine Academic Series. In 2015, she created the SmartHuman.com to share environmental health, disease prevention, and wellness information with the public. She lectures nationally on environmental health topics for elementary, high school, college, universities, medical schools, and physician training programs, and she's a regular expert guest for television, print, and podcast. She has been the recipient of countless awards, including Top Docs New Jersey in Rheumatology from 2016 to 2021, the New Jersey Healthcare Heroes Award in Education for the Smart Human Educational Platform in 2015, and the 2016 Burton L. Eicher Award for Humanitarianism. Dr. Cohen is working to educate and empower the next generation to make safer, smarter lifestyle choices through the creation of environmental health and prevention curricula for schools nationally. Her TEDx talk, How to Protect Your Kids from Toxic Chemicals, can be found on YouTube. Welcome, Dr. Cohen. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I first want to thank you for writing your book, Non-Toxic, The Guide to Living Healthy in a Chemical World. I think what is so important about the work you do is bridging that gap between research and the everyday consumer. And many people are not aware of the problems. I mean, we have decades and decades of research showing the dangers of chemicals, but yet there's this disconnect with that information getting to the public. Why has it taken so long for us to get this out to the public? Yeah, well, I think that what you're describing really is expressing what I felt, my frustration. The story behind the backstory on this whole topic for me is that I was someone who didn't know there was a problem. I didn't know that we weren't using products from store shelves that were unregulated and continue to be unregulated in terms of their ingredients. And so as a young mom, and this was about 10 years ago, I was just dumbfounded that even as a physician, let alone a mom, I wasn't aware that anything in our environment that included products or chemicals on fabrics or drinking water contaminants or cleaning products or baby products, a lot of them, if not all of them, are pretty much unregulated. Things have changed and I get into the nuances in terms of some of the carved out regulations, but they're so limited. And so what happened was as a frustrated 
person who had a sick dog at the time. That's the true backstory is my dog became sick Mm -hmm. and he was a puppy. And I didn't know why he got sick with such an unusual autoimmune disease. And it was autoimmune hepatitis. Mm -hmm. So it really kind of made me question if he's getting sick from possibly something in his environment, why are we not looking at humans and some of the environmental exposures that we're exposed to? And so it's taken for even me a 10-year journey to understand how to convey the really robust science, the international science world, health organization, American Academy of Pediatrics, Endocrine Society, all over the last five years, I would say primarily have come out with position statements. We have data from thousands of papers on so many chemicals. And it just was never translated in a way that I thought as an average human being, mom or doctor or both, I couldn't understand how to translate it to what my everyday shopping choices would be. And so I created a book out of my own frustration. And I figured if I'm walking this journey, I might as well just make it a lot easier and shorter for a lot of other people out there. The book has so many valuable resources, which can be really helpful because although I'm a nerd for all the research and I love to read about it and you have tons of resources for every chapter. People want to get down to the nitty gritty of what they need to do and what is most important. And I think you really get there with all the resources, where to go, what kind of checklist. You have a tear-off sheet. So I think your book is really helpful in that sense. It's like we totally forget about just taking care of ourselves and making sure we don't get sick. It's all about what we can do when we are sick. What about trying to prevent that? And so it's completely missing. Hopefully we're starting to see some shifts with integrative medicine, functional medicine, and more practitioners getting into that. So hopefully we'll see some changes in our lifetime, I hope. Well, I see frustrated patients. When you see patients that have no family history of autoimmune disease, since I'm a rheumatologist, Mm -hmm. I see quite a bit of autoimmunity. I have a ton of young people that have thyroid conditions, Hashimoto's, hypothyroid. These are nutritional iodine and other deficits. There are so many components to why people are now getting sicker younger. And they're getting sicker without family history, which is actually going to be the topic of my next book. But the idea is that we're now seeing such a a shift, such a sort of like shrinking of a time period where we thought people would naturally get sick at certain illnesses. Now we're seeing it younger and we're seeing it without family history, which is really pointing to the environmental exposure component, which includes nutrition. And I think when patients are sick and very angry about it and frustrated, Mm -hmm. they're not putting up with a lot of conventional talk of just medicines. They're looking to see what's causing their problems upstream. And I think that's why integrative medicine, functional medicine are gaining the attention that they're getting because they look for an upstream cause if they can find it. Yeah. And I think that's really important. You know, you mentioned a little bit about how you got into this because it your dog, but I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about that story and why it made you dive deeper into the topic of what's the root cause, because that wasn't really where your training was. You were trained as a rheumatologist. Why did you start looking at environmental exposures at that time? If you get the book, I started off the introduction because I wanted people to understand sort of what the heart was behind this, because I think people get into things they're passionate about when there's something that really touches their heart. I was a really young mom. I had two kids. I had a three and a one-year-old and my four-and-a-half-year-old golden retriever, who was my firstborn, and I loved so much. He got sick, and we didn't know why. We thought he swallowed a sock. We saw something typical of a golden chewing on lots of different things. When we actually brought him to the vet and really understood what was going on with him, he was icteric. He had liver disease, and we found out soon enough that he had a liver that had shrunk to the size of a golf ball from the size of, say, a huge piece of chicken filet. But the point is that we were too late with him and we had to just care for him until he died. And and we really did. My husband, who's a physician, and I used to put the babies to bed and then we would draw huge gallons of fluid off of his abdomen to make him more comfortable so he would be short of breath. So we did the best we could with him. But the idea was I started to say, well, why is this four and a half year old have a disease that even his vet said is so completely unusual, especially in this breed? They've seen it occasionally in Dobermans, apparently, at the time he was telling me that. So the idea was why. And so I started to look at his environment. What could have contributed to this? On just a really curious note, was it his food? Was it contaminated? Was his drinking water a problem? We live in New Jersey. Central New Jersey has lots of pesticides. I mean, we're the garden state. 
So I wondered about that water or, or spray. We were sprayed with glyphosate. We still are outside our backyard for the farming town that we live in. But I thought about his flea and tick collar, the goo that we put behind his neck that would make him lose his fleas and ticks that I would sometimes get on my hands and be like, whatever. And especially the red toy that he had in his mouth literally 24 hours a day. I mean, it never came out of his mouth. He just happened to love this red Kong toy or whatever. So the long and the short of it is I just started to explore plastics in his mouth. I started to explore flea and tick collars and medications. I started to explore our drinking water. Did we need a filter? He did have a filter, which was one of our few really smart choices before I knew anything about anything. And as I started to dive into his world and what could have affected his health, I revealed a Pandora's box of all of the lack of regulation in human products. The products are cosmetics, our cleaning products, our personal care products, air fresheners, candles, the fabric chemicals that we make to make things stain guarded, the nonstick pans that we use, the plastics that we heat up, like the steaming bags that we put our food in or the food comes in and we just put them in the microwave, steam them up and pour them into a plastic dish. I had no idea that there was such a robust amount of literature showing the problems human health problems with these chemicals, which are actually third-party tested. They're not tested by the manufacturer itself. Our government does not require them to test the 95,000 chemicals that are now commercially available in all of our products, baby products, cosmetics, personal care, food chemicals. They are not required for food testing for safety or toxicity in anyone, especially in pregnant women, and in immune-compromised people and elderly who have weakened immune systems in general. So we were a real problem. And I just kept looking at my cat at the time going, are you kidding me? I just would literally stare at you going, am I the only one who knows this? So then I started really researching the researchers and trying to reach out to the researchers that were making these wonderful studies that were in academic settings that had no bias to their work. And I wanted to know if this was real. And I just kept working my way through and getting in the right circles. And eventually I got through to Dr. Ambamsal and EWG's researcher, Joanna Congleton, the senior scientist. So I started doing CME programs with her and we worked on that for a year and a half to teach me what I needed to know. And then mm-hmm. Fred Bamsal and I sort of took off from there a couple of years later. But I needed to know the people that were bringing the science to life. And if they could tell me and teach me what I needed to know, then I could be armed with the fight to go into medical environments and teach other doctors. Yes. And how did you start then putting that into your practice? Because I imagine you're seeing all this information. At work, you're dealing with increasing rates of autoimmune disease. How did that come into your practice? And how did you feel? I honestly sometimes feel like, did I not help patients prior to me knowing this? And perhaps I missed some of these environmental exposures as being causes. Yeah, well, I think it's always 2020 hindsight, right? I like to believe that I'm a much better doctor now than I ever was even a few years ago, let alone 10 years ago. And I like to believe that in five years, I'm going to be even better than I am now. And I think that's really due to the fact that there's such amazing research going on in this area of environmental health. And it's really taken off because, again, our waterways are affecting people. So when you talk about environment issues, they come full circle back into the human body whether it's air pollution and depression, asthma, climate change issues, whether it's water and runoff from fashion industry or manufacturing, it's all going to come back into the human body. And so I think it's gained a lot of traction as to those connections between what we do in our environment and our conveniences and how it's really coming back to haunt us. 2020 hindsight, I will tell you that I layered in my messaging very carefully because I wanted to make sure that everything I said had evidence. And then I always make a point, as I do with the Smart Human, my platform, and anything I write about, anything I talk about, I will always talk about it only if there's a solution. Because I don't believe in fear for fear's sake. I just don't think it's productive, and it was never bad for me. So I really just talk about things that I think there's a sane, practical, hopefully inexpensive solution to, or else I just don't want to waste people's time. And that's what I do now is I introduce concepts of food quality. That's a very low-hanging fruit. A lot of our physician colleagues know processed foods are really bad because they have chemicals that are untested, but they also are very much linked to higher rates of cancers and heart disease. So there's a lot there that's easy, but then you have to kind of see how your comfort level is with talking about drinking water. What are your solutions? And that's what this book is also about, is how do you give people, uh, healthcare providers even, tools 
to talk to their patients and their clients. We can all share good information. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why some practitioners are not talking about it is because they don't have the tools, like you said. We have like uh, 10 minutes. <laughs> exactly. The way the healthcare system is set up, because I was part of this classic 30 patients, 40 patients a day in rheumatology. I worked for big rheumatology groups and I learned a lot, but it is like, boo, 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 boo. it's like, all right, what's the problem? Here's the medication. What's the problem? Here's the medication. What's the problem? Here's do this test, this medication. And that is really status quo because that was what I had learned. But what I realized is you need the time. Doctors need the time to ask not only about nutrition as a very basic topic, but also, you know, get an environmental history on a very basic level. Where do you spend your time? What air do you breathe? What is your drinking water? What aspects of your job potentially could be contributing to these symptoms? Because if you don't ask those things, then you're missing what you could actually remove and maybe make things better without any medicines. I think most Americans are just going about their day, showering with their body wash, driving in a car with air freshener, going to Starbucks, getting a hot coffee in that paper plastic cup, ordering lunch in a plastic container. And that seems normal. That's normal. And not realizing that they've now exposed themselves to hundreds of chemicals on a daily basis, repeated, repeated. How did we get to this place where there's 94,000 chemicals and we have like five chemicals banned and none are really tested. Yeah, it's become a hot mess. And the more I realize how true it is, the more it makes me angrier and my voice gets louder. But here's the thing. I was that person you just described. I was that Dunkin' Donuts styrofoam twice a day drinking, cheese whiz and Oreo popping, Diet Dr. Pepper swallowing like for residency. In my medical residency, I used to drink Diet Dr. Pepper like three times a day. Like I was, I was that afraid. person. And as long as I was kind of thin and cute and running around and jogging and could be guys at the time, you know, like none of that bothers me. Nothing really bothers people unless it smacks you in the face, like a rash or makes you gain weight or gives you pain. These are the things that make people right. motivate to find answers or their kid is sick or their dog is sick or they're sick. And I think those are the kinds of things that we're very complacent because most of these chemicals really do get into our body at very small doses. So we're talking parts per million, parts per trillion. And so here's sort of this punchline of why are these chemicals, how are they working on our body and even infertility, is that they get into our bodies at such small doses that they've never even been looked at in terms of harm because the old adage for toxicology is the dose makes the poison. So the more the exposure to something, chemical, alcohol, eating too much birthday cake, whatever, the more you take in, the more mm -hmm. likely you're going to have a bellyache from the cake or get hung over from the alcohol or have a rash from too much lotion, whatever. But what really was discovered almost haphazardly about 25 years ago is that the lowest, teeniest, tiniest parts per million, parts per trillion, parts per billion exposures can actually have some of the same dramatic effects on our health as the really high exposures. It's like a U-curve. And no one even bothered to look, certainly not manufacturers, at the very lowest because they would have assumed that's the way they work. They're endocrine-disrupting chemicals, they're EDCs, because they work like hormones. And that's how they have their huge effects. Hormones in the human body are messaging signals. They're proteins that kind of run around the body and they make things happen. They make us grow. They make our brain develop. They make our brain develops into male or female. They make our thyroid work so that we have a functioning thyroid. They make our bones get stronger for osteoporosis prevention. Our insulin is a hormone. So it makes our sugars get utilized effectively and appropriately so we don't get diabetes. We have hormones that affect, you know, risk for cancers, for hormone-sensitive cancers, endometrial, breast, testicular, prostate. So we have all these hormones that move around the body. And these chemicals have been shown to mimic those hormones at very low levels. So we have low-level chemicals, essentially, taking over or disrupting, affecting the receptors as well, of a lot of our common hormones that need to work. And so evolutionarily, they're conserved, meaning they you only need a little teeny, teeny bit to do a lot of work in the human right. body. And so and that's how these chemicals work and how they disrupt and cause eventually chronic health conditions, including infertility. Yeah. And I think it's hard to really understand that concept of a small, tiny, tiny amount actually has the same impact potentially as these very large doses. And so that is one of the arguments you get. Well, it's just a small amount. It's not that big of a deal. But like you said, when you think about it, hormones, they 
communicate in very tiny amounts. And when you have chemicals that are being used, one of which we know BPA was initially to be used as a pharmaceutical for estrogen, you know, a lot of people are shocked when they hear that, that basically it's almost like we have an estrogen-like chemical and we're drinking that every day. Yeah, and Water. actually used in the agriculture industry to fatten up chickens to make them meatier. So they affect obesity. That's how BPA can affect weight and weight gain. So there's very early uses of drugs that were BPA mimickers or similar to BPA that really were utilized for the damage they cause. And now we know that even low-dose exposures of some of these chemicals that many of the manufacturers knew all about now are coming into play because they're in everything we do. For instance, BPA is actually still in the lining as plastic coating of all canned foods. There's only a very, very small percentage of canned foods or drinks in this country and around the world that use a vegetable-type substance that's harmless, and those cost right. more to make. So, of course, now we're, we really have BPA in all of our canned foods and drinks, including sodas and organic vegetables, believe it or not. Look at the ironies mm -hmm. there. So the idea is if you're getting a canned food exposure every day or twice a day, there's some really great studies done even on soup. Like uh, they did an experiment on um, changing out uh processed soup from a can versus homemade soup with no chemicals. And it showed that 75 people over a three-week period had almost 1,100% decrease in yeah. BPA just from that one change in the ingestion of one mm -hmm. can, regular can versus homemade soup. So there's some really good studies. And I, actually, that's in the book because it was such a well-done study. Exposures over time really add up, and especially if you're getting BPA from a lot of different sources, which we lay out in the book. The idea is that what you could do is pluck away some of these things and really make a difference. Like that one canned soup a day can make a big difference in terms of the urine testing that's done to, to test BPA. You don't always have to get the tests because they're expensive. And take my word yeah. for it that doing what you need to do will make a difference because that's all based on my practice and certainly the studies that are already out there. So I don't want people to spend money on testing as much. I want people to spend money on the changes that they're going to make. Yeah, and I think that's, Actually, really comforting in a topic that can be somewhat depressing in a way is that you can make changes, and we do see that it reduces levels tremendously, as you said, with switching out canned foods that can see a huge drop in just a short amount of time. BPA has a half life like of six to eight hours. So it just happens to be one of the chemicals that you can actually get out of your body if you know the source. Now, other chemicals like the perfluoralkyls, the nonstick chemicals from nonstick pans, from stain guarding chemicals, they're used in fire retardants, they're used in food packaging, like on fast food wrappers to prevent grease from going through the paper right. that's covered with perfluoralkyl chemicals. If you stop eating processed foods that have wrappers like that, if you stop eating popcorn that are microwave popcorn bags have them, mm -hmm. if you swap out your nonstick pans to stainless steel, which takes a little more elbow grease, but certainly is far worth it. Mm -hmm. If you know where it's coming from, you won't get a perfect scenario because life is too fluid, but you can certainly make a dent on what we've done to ourselves at this point. But drinking water to me has risen to the top. Mm -hmm. It's my biggest beef. It's my top that I give the most. And it's the one I'm most passionate about. Because by volume, we drink more water than anything else and any food yeah. that we consume. We can't live without it. If it was three days, we'd be dead without water, but we could go a week without food. Our cells are made up of water. Our whole body is about 75% water. So the idea of not getting this right almost has become as much of an irony as when I was 10 years ago wondering what was going on with products. To me, it's really honed in on the biggest issue that I like to speak on because there's a solution or two or three. Because there's solutions, I feel very free on, on saying to people, any filtration is good filtration. You can always get better depending mm -hmm. on what you choose. Right. But I always want people to consider whether it's well water that they use or tap water, which is municipal tap that really serves 80% of the U.S. population. Mm -hmm. Every filter is worth something, even if it's just a pitcher, a carbon filter on a refrigerator door. But then you can get very extreme and those reverse osmosis filters, mm -hmm. which I like to, to recommend. They have their limitations. If you know companies and all that, you have to work through it. But the book talks about it and they're much more inexpensive than they've ever been. So they're accessible now to many people in the public. Yeah. And it's a really good investment because even if you're buying plastic water bottles, which I think people turn to because they think, well, I have to get that for clean water. Because one of the first questions I get when I start talking to patients about you not using single-use plastic waters is like, well, what am I going to drink? 
And somehow the idea of water filtration is sort of foreign. And so I think making an investment, like you said, it's really important. You have multiple people in your household and we drink so much water and even the water you cook with. I think sometimes people overlook that if you're like steaming rice or whatever, you're boiling pasta, it's still important because we assume that they're treating our water, but actually they're not really doing much when you know the details. They're doing the standard public health measures, which have saved millions and zillions of lives over the years because we now know what pestilence does and bacteria and viruses can do to communities. So they do treat the water with added chlorinated chemicals, but we get degradation products. We get products that come from chlorinated chemicals that are necessary to clean the water, to transport it to your home if it's municipal tap, but you want to remove that before it gets into your body because chlorine is a halogen which can attach to the thyroid gland because we know we have iodine that likes the thyroid on purpose. That's a healthy thing to have iodine to protect our thyroid. Well, chlorine likes to take its spot. So there's all these different things that we do for one benefit that may have downstream harm. And I'm just trying to say that's okay to do, but let's clean it before it gets into your body at the point of use, which is when it comes out of your faucet. And that's where you have a real opportunity to make a difference. And a point about the bottled water. We did bottled water for years before we got our reverse osmosis. And back then it was much more expensive. Now it's much cheaper. But the idea was that bottled water, 75%, 80% of it is actually tap water. People don't realize that all these companies are doing is taking a plastic bottle and putting it under their tap. And it's the same water they would get if they had just done municipal. I mean, it's like such a bad joke on people. I mean, to me, it's just such a sad state of affairs. But one of the things also is that the plastics in plastic bottles, you don't know where they've been sitting or made. I, in the book, have pictures of me sitting at a red light during the summer, 100 degree weather. And I'm looking to my left and I'm seeing all these pallets of plastic water bottles just sitting in 100 degree weather, waiting to get onto a non-refrigerated truck. I sat there for half an hour. No one came to lift them in. People don't realize that heat is pulling those chemicals into the water and they may or may not taste it. It's traveling to a refrigerated supermarket near you. And if you don't know that that's in there, you're missing an opportunity to put a filter in that's more upfront costs, but by far will save you more money than any bottled water that you keep taking in. Yeah, I think it's it's really good investment. And again, like you said, any type of filtration system that you can afford, because we don't want to make this not attainable for anyone, that is going to be beneficial. Yeah. It's going to be beneficial. And I'm actually using water testing companies to test the water that comes out of my reverse osmosis Mm -hmm. and out of my tap to see if it's really doing the job that I've assumed it's doing. So that's been very enlightening because not every reverse osmosis, even with great ratings, can get everything out necessarily. So I'm really considering telling people to test their water for 200 bucks or so to see what the actual problem is so they can guide them into the right filter. But again, I'm very leery of having people do too much testing unless it's a very reputable company and it's going to give you information that's going to save you, ultimately save you money for, you know, or health risks. So again, I'm playing around with that, with using myself as the test person. And I'm seeing that there's some benefit there if you have the money to do so. Yeah, I definitely agree. And testing or looking up at bare minimum on EWG, they do have how you can look at your water and the safety to at least have an idea of what kind of chemicals you need to be looking out for in your area. It's a crude measurement, but at least that gives you some information. Yeah. And you're entitled to a yearly water report, by the way, by law. So if you have municipal tap water, you are entitled once a year to have a report as to what's been going on. Now, again, it's fluid. If you have a flood in your environment, that could change the water quality. Hurricanes, tornadoes, temperatures could change the way these chemicals are picked up. And mind you, EWG is wonderful for their database, but it is updated about every five years. So I think they recently updated, but some of the newer companies for testing water kits, coincidentally, they're also trying to get their own database up and running this more real time. So these are the kinds of things that we now have competition, even in the health prevention world, to do really good work, which I love. Beyond water, another way that we can get a large amount of our chemical exposure is the food we eat. There's many layers, whether it's how they're grown and exposed to pesticides, the processing plant, where they come from, the packaging, or even how we cook them. How do you 
recommend people get started when trying to reduce chemical exposure in our food? Let's keep it really simple. The things that are in packages are processed. That's considered a processed food. There's all degrees of processed foods. You can have a packaged food that has two ingredients, three ingredients, but then you can have ultra processed foods, which means the list is this long in terms of every single thing that you can't even understand in terms of the ingredients. So you want to shop in the supermarket on the periphery because that tends to be where there's refrigerated salad dressings, you know, where you have produce, less packaged goods. Those are more in the center of the supermarket. Most things that are refrigerated are done so because they don't have necessarily preservatives or chemicals that can be harmful to our bodies. They are certainly not tested for most of them. There's about 10,000 allowable food chemicals in our food in the U.S., and they are not required to be tested for safety. People think that's the case. Most have been grandfathered in as generally regarded as safe, G-R-A-S. And so there are literally thousands and thousands of chemicals. Manufacturers are supposed to voluntarily tell the USDA if there's a problem, which doesn't happen. So the idea is that if you can go with more whole foods that are not packages that are in the center aisles, that's a good place to start. Clean, fresh vegetables, wild-caught fish, or even any fish that's fresh, but bigger fish are usually more contaminated with chemicals like mercury and uh, PCBs than smaller fish. So go with sardines and herring, salmon if it's wild-caught, shrimp. So you want to really think about trying frozen shrimp that are frozen off of the Keys of Florida with no nitrates or nitrites. So those are preservative chemicals. And you just look on the ingredients on the frozen bag. So you can get really savvy. And once you find your products that you like, you start building this regimen of products. It takes me 10 minutes to food shop at any food store now because I know exactly where they're sitting. I know exactly what we like. And I know that they're the clean versions of what I was trying to swap out all along the way. You start building so that it's very easy to go food shopping once you get the right products for each of things you like. So less processed foods, more whole foods, fresh foods, certainly organic is something I promote a lot because organic, which was started, I believe is 1982. I'd have to check my numbers, but not that long ago. And this was the only regulation in this country that we have that has any teeth whatsoever. It does require far fewer pesticides on our food ingredients and products. You can't have genetically modified ingredients like genetically modified soy or corn. There's lots of other genetically modified crops now no fake additives, preservatives, coloring. It's really all we got. So if you can find products that are USDA or organic, and I recommend frozen because they're cheaper and they also maintain all of their nutritional value when they're frozen, as opposed to even fresh organics that travel a very long distance. They may actually not have nutritional soil. It may have stayed in a warehouse for a year frozen just until they get to the big box stores. So I like frozen organics that are then transferred to glass to heat up. Mm -hmm. Those are all really good tips. You might have to do a little bit of research, but Dr. Cohen has done all the research for you in the book. And so you can just look through there to be able to see what kind of products, in addition to using other websites like EWG to verify your products and make sure that you're purchasing things that are on the safer side. They have a lot of great resources there too as well. One of the things that you get pushback when you talk about trying to reduce your chemicals is the affordability of this. But there are lots of things that you can do in your home or your day-to-day that are no cost or minimal cost. What are some of the tips that you have for people who are worried about cost? I watch costs. I grew up that way, and I'm going to continue to be that way. So when I wrote this book with Dr. Bumstall, you know, I was very conscious of the audience reading this and making sure that any socioeconomic background could really attain healthy food, healthy products. And so all of the websites, including for cosmetics, ewg.org slash skin deep is open to everybody. And not all the rich, expensive Chanel and all those fancy perfumes and lipsticks are actually safer. In fact, they're likely to be even less safe. So don't be fooled by the brands and the celebrities that are attached to them or the price points that you think make them safer. That is absolutely not the truth. But when it comes to food, for instance, if you have no access to organics, which there are certainly parts of this country that don't have access, they don't have fresh fruit and vegetables at their local store or they're very variable or random, then you can take conventional, which is not organic fruits and vegetables, And you can bring them home and you could just soak them and agitate them in one part white vinegar and three parts water. So maybe half a cup of white vinegar that you can get from any store and then a little bit of warm, hopefully filtered water, agitate it. And you can often see the residues, the junk coming off in the water. 
So that doesn't mm-hmm. take a lot of time or effort. It is very inexpensive. You can use baking soda as well. You can use one part baking soda, a little powdered in there, and then some warm, clean water. And so those could make a difference. Is it the best thing? No. Organics would be great, especially if they're on sale or in season. But if not, I mean, there's plenty of stuff that that asparagus doesn't always happen organically, even where I live. So we'll do that as well. It's pretty attainable if you just get savvy. And we want resources that are evergreen, that will always be up and running and run by people who keep them up to date. That was really key is evergreen sites that we think will be ongoing because the work they do and that they're legitimate, especially since COVID. The market has exploded with some of the worst chemicals that we do know are harmful and they're everywhere based on fear. With COVID, really isopropyl alcohol, 70% or above is all we need to kill the virus. And I carry little spray bottles and everything. You know, I have one in my pocketbook, I have one in my car. So you can really minimize the, the cost and the drama by just using a very safe product like isopropyl alcohol or rubbing alcohol. And it's so cheap. Talking about COVID, there is some evidence that talks about environmental chemicals actually having an impact on COVID infections. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Dr. Bamsal and I, we actually wrote this very early in the pandemic because as the pandemic was starting to play out, there was lots of data from Italy and the United States trying to show that people who had more chronic health conditions were doing worse. They were the ones that were starting to end up after COVID infection on a ventilator in the hospital ICUs and eventually had Mm -hmm. higher rates of death. And as the literature started to come out in much greater doses, we could see that those that had every additive chronic health condition from heart disease to high blood pressure to high cholesterol, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, cancers, anyone who had a chronic health condition, obesity certainly, was considered higher risk and it was additive. So the more chronic diseases, the more likely you were going to end up with a worse outcome. And what that ties into is all of the literature that currently exists that these chemicals contribute to inflammation and inflammation, which is also contributory to all of these chronic health conditions, it's like chicken and the egg, it's like circular. They basically set the baseline level of inflammation at a much higher level than people who don't have those chronic health conditions. And so when you get hit by a virus or something externally, your baseline is elevated so that you're more likely your immune system to be reactive, which is what its job is. And so really, the data has always continued to play out that people with chronic health conditions are considered inflamed, have inflammation issues, um, their body's working harder to be healthier. Medications contribute to this problem as well, by the way. There's not just the diseases, it's the treatments that can often make things worse, not always. But then that, when you get hit with something like COVID, it really lights the fire. The tinder just takes off. And it's really been the case. So again, it goes back to the idea that the cleaner we eat, the cleaner the air we breathe, the less crappy cosmetics and chemicals, the less stress, the more social and community environmental support we have, better sleep we have, because we know sleep plays a key role in getting rid of some of these chemicals around the brain, uh, spinal fluid as well. It's going back anthropologically to how do we make ourselves healthier and thrive, exercise, all of that. It really helps. So, so that's the connection really with COVID-19 outcomes is really that this inflammatory process starts at a very basic level of exposure of many of these chemicals. Yeah. And there's some evidence coming out about those who have compromised gut microbiomes that can also make them more susceptible. And there is evidence about how chemicals can affect the microbiome. What kind of evidence have you seen about the impact on the microbiome from chemicals? Yeah, this was interesting when we were researching this with the book, because the book went into publication, you know, in 2020, literally when it was just starting the pandemic. And there was already evidence to show. And now, as you mentioned, even more. So the gut microbiome is all the bacteria and flora. So bacteria, viruses, yeast, mold, having a good old time, balanced. They've been with us for millions of years. And in a healthy gut of 24 feet, believe it or not, we have a gut that's 24 feet long, kids 22 feet. These buggers all balance each other out and have been part of our evolutionary history for millions of years. But what happened is really more recently, 10 to 25,000 years, we're eating more things that are really not healthful to that gut environment and kind of really knocking off good guys. 
gluten can do that often. People don't always feel it, but it can do that even if you're not symptomatic. Chemicals in our food, uh, chlorinated drinking water, right? The chlorine kills bacteria in the water. Why wouldn't it kill the good guys in our gut? So there's a lot of stress. If, if our stress level changes and our pH, we get more acidic, right? So you're changing the natural environment of acidic gut, and that will kill off some of the very healthful non-pathologic bacteria that support our immune system, which is the gut. So really it behooves all of us to try to think not just what we put on our skin, but what are we dumping into our gut mm-hmm. to make it either unhealthy or healthy? Because most things are not just neutral. They're either going to hurt you or they're going to hurt you. And so you want to try to figure out if you can distinguish between the two for your body. Yeah. And I think one of the hard things about chemical exposures in general is if we're using a soap and we see that it's giving us a rash, then we can easily put the connection together. But trying to put together, hey, perhaps my infertility or my thyroid disease or my diabetes is linked to chemical exposure, perhaps even from a generation ago, which I wanted you to talk about, making that connection is really difficult because we don't see it right away. Yeah, I think that's the joke of it all is that these things are very insidious. These exposures, they don't smack you on the face and give you a rash. They can work on the insides of your body without really letting you know. And then the only way you know is that you're not achieving the goals that you want, whether it's lowering your sugars, uh, because environmental chemicals can work against all your efforts with diet if the quality is not good. You know, or fertility, if you're not getting pregnant, it's not always just about chemicals. I don't want to mislead anyone into thinking that, you know, certainly other things play a role. There's a lot you can do here. I also wanted to have you speak about the critical time window because I'm really concerned because of the fact when someone's trying to conceive, we are in fact potentially impacting three generations, which a lot of people don't really pay attention to. But if you could talk to us a little bit about the critical time window and then also how it can impact multiple generations. I mean, it's not like we want more bad news to hear on this podcast, but I want to explain it to people that there are actually genetic changes that can go on from exposures to many chemicals. And what I mean by that is that, say, a woman is exposed while she's pregnant, she's not only exposing her own body to that exposure, whatever it is. And there's studies on stress during World War II called the Dutch famine. There's chemicals themselves. There's air pollution studies on this. But the woman is not only exposed, the fetus is exposed, but also the fetal germ cells, which are the precursor sperm cells, as well as the eggs that are in our ovaries when we're born as females. So the idea is that there are literally three generations exposed when a pregnant woman is exposed to anything. So I think it's important to understand that there is the potential to have genetic changes from those exposures that carry down even through into multiple generations now. The most that's been studied in animals, it goes to like six generations. And then this has been looked at with midclozolin and certain fungicides. And I put them in the book. For human studies, of course, it's not ethical to just take someone and throw them in a vat of polyvinyl chloride and say, let's see what happens. But we do know from occupational studies, farm workers, migrant workers, we know that from the Dutch hunger, fascinating story about World War II, women who were pregnant who were starving during World War II, And they followed out the children and their children to see what health effects might have come from that very stressful environment with with limited food. And it turns out they had higher risk for heart disease, breast cancer, and a bunch of other chronic illnesses multiple generations Mm -hmm. out that were really found to be related to that stressful exposure from the pregnant mother during that time. So there's about three generations that have been checked out for most human studies for transgenerational genetic changes. Yeah. Right. And we can't study them as much as rats. Obviously, we can study multiple generations of rats because they reproduce really quickly and we can go through generations quickly. We can't get through that many generations in humans. It takes forever. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, it's careful when you extrapolate the data from animal studies to human studies. Um, And so they're using as best they can animals that are most similar in terms of structure and endocrine system similarities to really make those But again, it goes all down to precautionary principle, which is this real Mm -hmm. statement that, look, you don't necessarily have to have double-blinded placebo-controlled studies, Mm million-dollar studies to say that some little thing here is going to make this problem here. If you have enough Mm -hmm. similar data and the assumption is pretty likely, then make that change to avoid it. That's precautionary principle. And then really, that's what we have to work with now because it's just making better choices that aren't such a stretch. 
pregnant women, they're not included in most clinical trials, if not all of them, because mm-hmm. no one wants a lawsuit right. if something happens right. with the baby. So we have a dearth of information for this very important group of humans worldwide. And we, we extrapolate just from non-pregnant women and non-pregnant men and animal studies. So again, we are all about precautionary principle. I think instinctively with pregnancy, even if you've never picked up a book on environmental health, most of us right. agree that people sometimes stop their coloring their hair, or they stop eating junk food or less junk food. There's an instinct, but not many people have the, the data to really support that instinct in front of them. And that's what I wanted to give people. And in terms of the windows of vulnerability that I want to touch on, it's not just this exposure issue as a pregnant woman. The certain trimesters are more vulnerable than others, but also We have other times when our endocrine system is on high function. Toddlers are growing enormously, babies and toddlers. And so their hormones are really accelerating. And so that's when many of these chemicals may have some bad effects on growth and development. We could say that also about the teenage years, puberty. I do a lot of teaching in high school and my TED talk is actually, I hope people will watch it or show their kids because it's really geared towards young people to understand how puberty is so critical as well, that those years where we have really high levels of hormones, trust me, I have two kids now that are in that age group. And then we have, you know, times like menopause, which no one thinks much of, but that's a time of hormonal change that can be very important, especially for breast cancer risk. So I just want people to realize that it's not the whole lifespan, which is problematic. It can be, but it's certainly been pinpointed in during certain windows of development. Carrying some of these things for someone who's listening sometimes can feel a little bit defeating. Perhaps the idea that we talked about in utero and exposure and perhaps someone who is dealing with infertility, is there a possibility that they had it from childhood exposure or in utero exposure? But there are some things that we can do, lifestyle choices and things that we do that still can impact how chemicals affect us. Can you talk a little bit about that? I had to prepare a talk with Dr. Andrew Wiles' nutrition conference in Boston a few years back, and I wanted to look at the data showing whether or not you could kind of eat your way out of bad genetic changes from the environment. And it turns out there's really a lot of great information. Essentially, the punchline is that so many healthy foods that we eat can actually help with preventing exposure and genetic changes from these toxins. For instance, B9 folate folic acid, folate. We've all heard of that, especially if you're pregnant, you have to take folic acid. That can be very helpful in the methylation process. And I don't want to get too medical knowledge, technology, too scientific, but the idea is that B9 folic acid can offset some of those genetic changes. Having enough vitamin C and iron can actually offset lead exposure and methylmercury exposure components. People around the world, especially the United States, that are drinking water that has lead, including Flint, Michigan, which got a lot of news, but also Newark, New Jersey, and a whole bunch of areas. Well, it turns out that having enough vitamin C in your system, having enough iron in your system, being like healthful with your diet will block some of those effects from harmful toxins. So we do have the capability of also arming ourselves against the world that we now created, unfortunately, for ourselves. And so, again, the punchline is if you eat clean, pesticide-free as much as possible, you're in better shape to manage the world you walk through. Right. And even you mentioned things like sleep or exercise and stress. Those kind of things can impact how you interact with chemicals as well. Right. Sweating. If you're sweating, you're reducing a lot of chemicals. There's a lot of great studies on sauna therapy. My arthritic patients aren't going to go run a mile or or two or three. So they have access to maybe a conventional sauna. A conventional sauna is just raising temperature. Now they have to be healthy enough to sit in there. You know, certainly you don't want to have someone with heart condition or you want to ask your doctor. But the idea is that sweating naturally removes a lot of chemicals. It actually sends blood flow to the liver, which makes the liver, which is a detox organ, really work at its finest. Sleep has great studies, which we talk about how when you sleep, we actually clear many of the chemicals while we're sleeping. So it's not just about restful, you know, sleep, waking up, feeling peaceful, less headache, better cognition, memory, but it's about washing out chemicals in a reasonable way so that you can restart your day. So these are all things that are integrative medicine by definition. Managing stress, all those things can affect the immune system and irritate it. So you want to just kind of work on all these things as best you can. It's good to know that we still have some element of control in this. It's not all hope is lost. 
I wanted the book to be empowering. And so Guide to Living Healthy in a Chemical World, not, you know, being non-toxic as opposed to being toxic really is my philosophy. Maybe I have to rely on it, but, you know, to move forward with kids in my future. But I'll tell you what I've seen in the data I've seen in testing patients and looking at their blood levels and the urine levels drop with many of these common exposures, it can be done. And so I'm really just hoping that this empowers people rather than makes them shut down because that's the whole point of the book. It even has recipes in the back for anti-inflammatory foods. And I really wanted my colleague, who's an excellent cook, who's done a lot of this work in inflammation and dieting to really add to this book is to say, here, make this. It has everything in it that's been linked to reducing chemical problems. Again, the book is such a helpful guide. So anyone who's listening, I really recommend. It's a great place to start. There's so many wonderful resources. You know, one, we've been talking a lot about personal exposures, home and things like that. But one of the things you did touch on in your book is occupational exposures, which I think sometimes can get overlooked. But there's really a lot of potential for occupational exposures to cause problems for our health. In the United States, there's people doing a lot of really tough jobs. It's just a fact. People are doing things that that because of their work and their lifestyle, they have to be exposed to things. And OSHA, which is our governmental body that oversees exposures legally or, you know, on a federal level, people are allowed to have higher levels of exposure to things like mercury and lead and cadmium and arsenic. And in fact, when I run those tests through our conventional lab system, like LabCorpWest, you can get a screening level where it'll say, oh, this level is for non-smokers, this level is for smokers, and this is for occupational exposure. So Mm -hmm. just knowing that we are allowed to have higher levels if we're in a governmental overseeing job that uses those chemicals doesn't really make me feel good. It makes me feel sad, but it is where we're at when we have people in Mm -hmm. these jobs. But it just goes back to the idea. How do we tell patients, tell our friends to reduce those exposures in ways that they can do it without losing their job? It comes to wearing the right gloves, masks, breathing apparatus. I have a mother-daughter team who run a family business. It's an automotive business, but they also smoke. So their cadmium levels were sky high and they had no ventilation in this automotive business. So I said, let's start with just the things you can do, which is just reducing smoking. And their cadmium levels have come down. So the idea is that you'd work with what you can do. And occupationally, just try to make the setting even better than even expected by government oversight. Add windows, add ventilation, protective clothing, and really hold to it because that's meant to protect you from those exposures. Yeah. And then also, once you leave the job, you know, I had a patient who experienced pregnancy loss and autoimmune thyroid disease, and they came in with having those things in a short period of time. And once I started asking questions, I found out that the partner actually worked spraying pesticides. So I started asking him about protective gear, uniform. He was using that, but he was coming into the home, not removing his uniform and wearing it in the home for several hours. And then washing it with the rest of the laundry, perhaps. Right, which is very alarming. But we don't think about those things because we're not taught about the potential negative effects of that. It's important to look at all those details. How do you walk through your life? When you walk into your home, what are you bringing in? Shoes that have all sorts of chemicals, E. coli from bathrooms that you're in. You walked through your lawn, which you have sprayed, which I don't recommend, but everyone wants to keep up with the Joneses with their lawns and make them nice. Or you came from a park where you don't have as much control as to what they're spraying. So you're walking into your home. So do you take your shoes off? Do you have a bucket for your shoes? Is everyone comfortable doing that? Even guests. Then you walk into your home. What are you smelling? Are you smelling air fresheners that are plugged in? I remember the day that I literally took an entire drawer of like 30 different liquid plug-in things 10 years ago. And I remember they each had like ocean breeze, strawberry fields, and you just wanted to be there with like Mai Tai sitting next to the pool. And it was so funny to me because I remember the, the day that I threw up the entire drawer. And of course, I'd spent money, so I'm like twitching. But you get to a point where the more you know and when you know, you do better. So I think there's something empowering about doing a survey of your life and just working through. It's a journey. And working through something maybe once a month. Like if you could just do water this Mm -hmm. month and figure out your water filter, it is huge. 
Next month, you want to just do cosmetics. It doesn't take long to look them up on EWG, pick the ones you want, try a couple out. So you can go through each chapter and really work your way through your life at the same pace that you can go through the book in a very reasonable way. Fragrances was a hard one for me. I was just like you with all the plugins because there's something about fragrances, like you said, taking you away to a vacation spot or feeling like there's this memory tie in that could be your laundry detergent. It reminds you of your grandma or your mom or for cleaner. And that's part of the marketing of these companies is to get us to remember. You smell the clothes and you think of your childhood. When you learn more and the science evolves, you want to decide if you want to jump in on the new science. It's pretty good. And I think this is just another iteration of how we can do better than even our childhood, if that's how you grew up, like I did. What do you hope for the future in this area, and how do we remain hopeful? So as I tell in the introduction, it was such a journey to find out that doctors at that time were not listening to all the talks I was given at hospital systems. I was super empowered, and I had all the knowledge, and I was going in there like gangbusters, and no one really was listening as colleagues. And then I had my babysitter at the time saying, oh, you're into this? What shampoo doesn't have any chemicals in it? And literally it was like a light bulb went off because she was interested and she wanted this information. And I thought, I got to do a high school pilot project and see if this is where this information belongs because you can't do everything for everybody. And the TED Talk is about the pilot projects and the data that I collected. It turns out that this is a really great generation to teach environmental health and prevention. And why not? They haven't necessarily had kids yet. They may want one or two, and they may want it in the future. They may not. But if you get people young where they're not yet sold on their favorite cosmetics that they're sticking with for life and they're body conscious, that maybe they're body insecure, which is a great time to get good information in. I like to speak to everybody, every age group, elderly as well, because they're grandparents and they have a lot of influence. So I want to make sure that I, I'm hopeful about the future because I see that the people I'm teaching are really wonderful in terms of not just environmental issues, sustainability in our planet, but they also want to make sure that that doesn't affect their bodies and their children. So that's where I think that my hope lies. And I have two children of my own and they're tough. They're tough on me and they're tough in general. So if I can help make them make changes that are better for their future, then I feel like I'm winning this war. And there's lots of like-minded colleagues. Look, you asked me on your podcast, how awesome is that? That shows you that information is spreading. And I think it's building and hopefully it's going to play out in the work of the legislation and allowing these chemicals onto the market without testing has been a problem in the U.S. and will be. But we're making some changes. Some pesticides have been removed. Glyphosate Roundup has had major changes in terms of its product use, not commercially yet, but certainly residentially. We get a lot of information about alerts from chemicals in in major companies like Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson. And for nothing more than the bottom line, they want to make money. So if it means you choosing products that moves the market like these teenagers I'm hoping will, it's going to send a message financially. These companies need to make cleaner products that are tested for safety and or toxicity before they're put into products that go onto our shelves. Yeah, I think it's obvious that we're not going to see policy changes unless consumers make the push for that. And I think there are so many options now for products. You don't have to feel like I did maybe nine, 10 years ago, like, oh, there's not that many things on the market. Now it's like there's no reason to be using products that are full of chemicals. True. And I think that's a testament to the spreading of this information. And Maybe because it's a reaction to people not wanting to be sick anymore. And if that's what it takes, then we got to keep moving so that next generations are even healthier than this generation as well. Yeah, I agree. In closing, I like to remind my listeners that it's important to find joy in our daily lives. How do you cultivate joy in your life? Joy comes from my kids, my animals, my spouse, my husband. Connecting with them at the end of a day is really great. I also really love to run. I'm a runner and it's been really hard with the cold weather. I feel like I'm just losing my mind, but that's how I get rid of my stress a lot and think and brainstorm. So I would say very basic needs give me joy. Chocolate. Oh my God. Chocolate. Yeah. Me too. Me too. I love chocolate. (laughs) How can listeners connect with you and learn more about the work you're doing? I would love people to follow the platform I started, 
out of frustration and just to get it out there called The Smart Human. So it's The Smart Human. I have a podcast myself, which has a lot of environmental health specialists, environmental health lawyers, doctors, people who really are, are doing special things in this kind of arena. But The Smart Human on Facebook, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I post a lot of information. Instagram, of course, a little more fun. I have a little more kitschy stuff there, but it's definitely a learning platform. And thesmarthuman.com has all of the podcasts I ever do. They get funneled into that, plus the YouTube channel for The Smart Human. It's all under The Smart Human. So I encourage people to check that out. Follow because you may learn stuff. And of course, the book is my baby. I did a textbook with Dr. Bumsal, but that was more for healthcare providers and doctors and a little more gritty with detail. But this is really my baby. This is what I wanted to always put out there. So I hope you will check that out. And what else? I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. I grew up here. So you can always see me as a telemedicine patient if you live far away or visit me in New Jersey. But I am still seeing patients, new patients as well. And, and I love my patient care. So it's something I, I really find joy in. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and all the work you're doing. You're tireless with working in this space. Thank you. I am tired, but thank you. I appreciate the time. <laughs> tired I am, but tireless work and passion. Okay, I'll take that. Anyway, thank you so much for having me because it was really a pleasure chatting with you. And, and thank you to your audience for listening. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you for listening today. Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys podcast. My guest today shares her story on social media to let other minority women know that they're not alone. Welcome, Rima Shabar. Did you ever feel a sense of disconnection from your body, either when you were going through treatment or through surgery or anger towards the situation? I wouldn't necessarily say I was angry with my body. I'm a firm believer that everything is destined in a sense. And if it's been destined that I have endometriosis, it's out of my hands. I can't do anything about it. Same thing with infertility. I can't. I'm trying everything I can. It's just frustration with not understanding the end goal. I guess my frustration lied there. Well, why do I have to have endometriosis? But at the end of the day, I just have to roll with the punches. I try and tell myself that and I always try to remind myself of what I have, what my blessings are. And I can't just fixate on this one aspect of life. As hard as it is not mm -hmm. to fixate on it. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.